Blog Talk Radio. Hi, you're on the air with Patricia Adams Live, and we have a special guest. Dr. Professor Timothy J. Golden, yay! And we are going <laughs> to have someone who can bring validation to this discussion, to this platform. This is someone that we've never really talked about this show. He simply agreed to be a guest on the show, and we wanted to leave it for this show to allow it to just flow and be organic. And I appreciate that so much, given your time and the value of your time. I just want to thank you so much again for agreeing to be on the show with me today, Dr. Golden. You are very welcome, Patricia. Yes, and I hope and pray that somewhere out here today, tomorrow, the next day, next year, whenever... This is going to be in the archives. It's going to be available for download as an MP3 file. It's also in the iTunes store. You can go to Apple, you can go to iTunes, and put in the show, Patricia Adams Live, or you can go directly to my platform here on blogtalkradio.com, Patricia Adams Live, and click on the RIS feed, and you can get the feed, and you can add it to your website, you can add it to your social media, whatever it is. Anyone wants to do in the listening audience to get this message out, I would appreciate it so much if you could. And I kind of want to say, uh, Dr. Golden, I grew up in a household where I saw men being abused. And that's my why. Because the effect that it had on me as a young child watching strong men physically appearing strong men being abused. And when I was being abused by the same abuser, they could me because I, they were being abused. And mm-hmm. it really affected me to the point to where when I grew up, I was attracted to abusive relationships. Mm-hmm. And why in the world if I had never been, say, seeing men beat women, did I end up in a relationship multiple times where men were beating me. And I can only go back to what I went through. And I tell people that I was abused by women and I was abused primarily by women in my childhood, all the way up until age 18. And from the age of 18 forward until I was 24 years old, I was primarily abused by men. And you would think that I would just say, you know, I don't want to help anybody. (laughs) I don't want to help men and I don't want to help women, but to me it's not a male-female issue. It's a human issue. And until the conversation is level where we are just as appalled and disgusted 
when a man is being abused as we are when a woman is being abused. So I'm laying this out here now to anybody who wants to say something to me, what gives you the right to have this conversation. My story gives me the right to have this story. My, My story and my experience, and that's just the tip of my experience, and that's why until we have the conversation about how we treat one another, how we treat each other as human beings, it will never be a lopsided conversation. And to have someone of Dr. Golden's magnitude on the show brings so much depth to the conversation that I really am going to turn this show over to him. But I wanted for anybody who wanted to present a challenge um, to me as to no, men can't be abused, I can give you the receipt. So all I can tell you is that Dr. Golden is a professor of philosophy, so we're going to get a philosophical viewpoint on this. He is also a director of the pre-law program at the university, and he is also an author. And he has multiple books that have been written and other books that are forthcoming at the university level. But here is the caveat behind this, that we're talking to someone who basically, I I don't want to call you a former attorney, (laughs) defense attorney, because I believe that since you are a director of pre-law, you are still an attorney. Mm-hmm. In my in my eyes, and for the sake of this conversation, so I want you to understand how is it that someone of this level of intelligence, of this level of magnitude, can go from all of these things and end up being abused. Mm-hmm. And until we sit back and have this conversation, it, it will never, ever, ever be equal footing. It's not okay to be a child. It's not okay to be the man. It's not okay to be a woman. It's not okay. I mean, we are more about dogs being beaten and horses being beaten and and pets. And, and, I mean, someone threw a a pet in a dryer and, oh, my God, the Internet went crazy. But someone also threw a child in a dryer and the Internet barely set a peep. So, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And so philosophically speaking, I'm grateful for your coming on and for your legal background and your level of expertise as a university professor. So Dr. Timothy Joseph Golden, welcome to Patricia Adams Live and to the listening audience who will be tuning in from Facebook, from wherever this link has been posted. Please let hear it for him and his story of overcoming. So, Dr. Golden, it's all yours. Thank you very much, Patricia. I really appreciate your your comments, and I'm, let me just say that I'm very humbled and I'm very honored to be a guest on your show. I'm, I'm always grateful for the opportunity to share my story and my experience because we live in a world that has a way of privileging what we see over what we don't see. We privilege what's visible. And you spoke of your why as it relates to this issue. 
as being a child and seeing men abused and you yourself growing up and getting into abusive relationships and, and that being your why. And, and my why is that I will, I will not rest until the emotional abuse of men is taken as seriously as the physical abuse of women. There is a tendency to privilege the black eyes, broken bones, and missing teeth of women who are in abusive relationships with men. And there's nothing wrong with that being condemned. It should be condemned. It must be condemned. And physical abuse, whether it's male on female or female on male, is is unacceptable across the board. So let me just put that out there. But what I am interested in is the inner lives of men. I'm interested in how it is that many men demonstrate symptoms of emotional abuse that our society and our culture interprets as being lazy or shiftless or trifling or complacent. And the reality is that many men die twice. Their physical death is merely a belated pronouncement of an emotional and psychological demise that occurred long before they were put in the coffin and buried. And what I mean by that is that there are many men who are in relationships that are killing them emotionally and psychologically. We live in a world and in a culture where it's fashionable to denigrate men, to say that men don't know what they're doing. I don't know how many people out there listening are familiar with this, but recently, uh, I think it was maybe two or three months ago, maybe four months ago, Michelle Obama made a comment about the current presidential administration being like spending a weekend with a divorced dad. And she didn't get a lot of pushback on that, in, in part because of who she is. Her popularity is, is very, very high. And so people are not going to be as eager to criticize Michelle Obama. But for her to make a comment like that and for it to skate by without too much criticism or without her really being taken to task for it reflects the precise problem that I'm talking about here, which is that there's a presumption. I mean, think about the, the language in her, in, her, in her rhetoric there, a divorced dad. The first thing that came to my mind when I heard her say that was, well, I know a lot of divorced dads who are not incompetent nincompoops who love and care for their children just as passionately as their mothers do. But somehow or another, we have a difficult time in our culture accepting the idea that men are capable of having functional relationships, that they do want commitment, that they do have emotional and psychological needs the same way a woman does, and because we tend not to look at those demands of men, 
for their emotional and psychological well-being, we just overlook them. And so it becomes difficult for us to even conceive of a man as a victim of emotional abuse precisely because it's difficult for us to even conceive of men having emotions, period. And my why is that the culture must be changed. We have to shift away from this idea of men being unloving ogres who just want to oppress women and rape women to a more balanced understanding of men that takes account for their emotional and psychological lives and therefore takes account for their emotional and psychological well-being because we recognize that they even have such inner lives in the first place. And so my story emerges out of this context, out of this social and cultural context in which many men, because their inner lives, their emotional lives are not recognized, they don't really know how to describe what they're feeling. And when you add on top of that, the stereotypes and the demands on men not to punk out, don't be a wimp, don't be a chump, suck it up, you're supposed to be a man, you're not, this isn't supposed to bother you. And then when you compound Christian culture on top of it, then the abuse becomes spiritualized. Now, in church cultures and in church communities, we develop an entire theology of masculinity that is totally dysfunctional. Because men are now told from pulpits that it's not about how you feel, that you have to suck it up and be a man, that you're, quote, unquote, all in your feelings, that your feelings don't matter. And nothing could be further from the truth. Now, let me say this. I think there are a couple of distinctions that need to be made. When I speak of the feelings and inner lives of men and their emotional and psychological well-being, I'm not talking about the whimsical flights of fancy and and feeling that go up and down with everyday life, right? So I'm not talking about a man getting up and saying, you know, I don't feel like going to work today, so I'm not going to go, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that part of the human psyche, the human essence, what the Greek philosophers called the suke or the soul, the part of what makes us who we are that relates to how we feel about things that happen to us in the world. So I'm not talking about, again, a a whimsical shifting sands of, I feel like doing this one minute. I feel like doing this the next and living my life based on some whim about how I feel and so I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that. No, that actually is trifling, right? That actually is something to be condemned. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that part of our inner lives that's necessary for our emotional and psychological well-being. And so to, to have that inner life and not have it recognized 
puts men in the difficult position of being unable to express themselves. And then when men go for too long without being able to express themselves, in extreme cases like mine, you're led to the point where you feel trapped. And when a man starts to feel trapped, that's when he starts to consider taking his own life. And so eventually I got to that point. Now I'll just, I'll say this. My, my story begins in, in a marriage. Uh, it begins in a marriage that was, uh, that was dysfunctional. Um, I, let me also say I, I'm no longer in that marriage and I have no animus. I have no ill will toward my ex-wife. I'm not saying that she's a bad person. In fact, what I would say, and it's an, it's a cliche, I don't like cliches, but this one holds true, I think, in most abusive relationships, male or female, hurt people hurt people. And when you yourself have been on the receiving end of pain, sometimes we unreflectively turn around and inflict that pain on other people. And I have no doubt that in my ex-wife's heart and mind, she genuinely believes that she what that she never did anything wrong and in some ways her inability to understand my articulation of how I'm feeling reflects this larger societal problem and so th- with me the dynamic of the relationship sort of went back and forth and it was an issue with what I looked like and her lack of sexual attraction to me. And it got so bad to the point where I could predict with some certainty when the next episode, abusive episode, would come up. And people say to me, well, my goodness, was it that bad all the time? I mean, you were married for 19 years. Was the relationship that difficult? And this is where people have to understand the dynamics of abusive relationships. They are abusive precisely because they're not always bad. What makes an abusive relationship abusive is that the relationship is punctuated by episodes of abuse that follow periods of what seem to be a functional, peaceful, calm relationship. And as soon as the abuse victim begins to stabilize and think everything is okay, there's an episode. And that episode plays itself out. And the way it played itself out in my marriage was there would be an extensive period of the silent treatment. Um, Sometimes there would be just anger directed at me, um, statements like, why don't you just lose weight? If you, if you lost weight, you wouldn't make me so angry. That's something to think about there, right? Because if a man is abusing a woman physically and he says to her, if you didn't make me so angry, I wouldn't hit you. It's sort of like what my ex-wife said to me. If you, didn't, <laughs> if you lost weight, you wouldn't make me so angry and I wouldn't have to go off on you. And, and so with this kind of, of up and down, up and down 
Everything seems to be okay. It's not okay. Everything seems to be okay. It's not okay. With this kind of rhythm to the relationship, what ends up happening is over time, your self-esteem is completely eviscerated. It's just eliminated. And you start to feel worthless. And when once you start to feel worthless, then you reach a place where your sense of reality becomes destabilized because you don't really trust yourself, right? You're not really sure of what's real anymore because most abusers, whether they be men or women, and I'm talking about emotional abuse now, I'm talking about emotional abuse and manipulation. I'm talking about gaslighting. I'm talking about, uh, you know, narcissistic weaponizing of one sexuality. My ex-wife had a habit of telling me how attracted I was to her, but that she was not reciprocally so attracted to me. And I therefore had to get myself together. And it, th- that's the kind of dynamic that existed there. And so what ends up happening over time is that the abuser learns to develop a public face and a private face. And the public face is one that sends a message to the rest of the world that everything is okay in this relationship. In fact, not only is everything okay, but the abuser sort of goes out of their way to paint a picture of themselves as a loving, kind, devoted, and loyal spouse who would sacrifice anything for their spouse and who just gushes over them in public And that's one of the things my ex-wife would do. But then the private treatment behind closed doors is the total opposite of the public declarations, the public proclamations, the public expressions of love and affection that are getting showered upon you. And so for me, what would happen is I would be mistreated privately but I would have my praises sung publicly. And so privately, whenever I felt like something was wrong or this relationship was bad, or maybe I should begin to set some boundaries publicly, I would reflect on the public expression of, of my ex-wife. And I would say, Oh no, no, something must be wrong with you. Maybe you're just being too sensitive. And in that moment I was destabilized. In that moment, I was questioning reality. And those are the moments that make you remain. People say, why do you stay so long? I was married for 19 years. People say, why do you stay so long? And you stay so long because you're unsure of yourself. And you're unsure of yourself because the long-term effects of abuse are to, one, diminish your self-esteem, and two, cause you to question your sense of what's real. And so that's that's some of what happened in my situation. Did you have any questions, Patricia? Hello, Patricia. I don't. I'm here. I don't. This is all you. Okay. I, I, I okay. take it away. Take it away. It's all you. Okay. Well, I, I, I just wanted to you know, those are some some of the points that I wanted to make. And do do we have any callers? 
Um, not at the moment. Not at the moment, but okay. we have people who are connected on LinkedIn and on Facebook. So okay. they are listening uh, through the social media. Are there are there are there any has anyone asked any questions? I will say this is that I did have a young man reach out to me when I was um posting this on on the uh, LinkedIn profile and he okay. is not ready to come forward. Um okay. he told me, you know, he's about 24 years old and he he's he's going to be you know helped through this. So okay. I just Right now, not every man is ready to just sure. come out, but I know that they're out there because they're reaching out to me, um, you know, sure. on uh, you know, sure. that side. So that's why I don't want to take anything away from your experience or conversation because I am hoping that this young man, any other young man, an old man, whatever, that they hear what you are saying and not just... Uh, dismiss it, and I know that I had such adversity preparing for this show. Um, there are some people who, not just females, but men who probably don't want this story to be told. Mm-hmm. But all I can tell you mm-hmm. is, is that it is necessary. This is not a new thing. It's not a new thing. Right. And as long as we keep it um Covered up, if you would, and and make it difficult and make it such an issue that it's impossible. And and I will, when I was preparing again, and I, so basically on the periphery of this, these men are tuned in. These are men mm-hmm. who have been talking to me as I posted this show out and told them what I was doing. There was one another guy. He told me of a family member of his who's um, a tall, six foot five. I, you know, um, with a wife that, you know, demure and, you know, fatigued and how, you know, he is being physically, emotionally, financially, sexually being abused. And yeah. his family has tried to get him out of that. And right now, you know, they had him out and he went back because she used what she uses, you know, uh, to get him back. Mm. And so... I don't want to take away anything that you feel led to say. Just know that they're out there and, you know, know, that would cause them to maybe their voice to be on the line. So I get it. I absolutely get it. The fact that they are reaching out to me and I know they're listening. This is for them. This is for the people who love them and care and are concerned about them. Um, mm-hmm. So, from a legal standpoint, from a philosophical standpoint, from a religious standpoint, from a personal standpoint, that's mm-hmm. you know what I am all to offer them. And so, the cycle things that you said it's I'm posting while you're talking. I'm posting things mm-hmm. um, that are about the warning signs. So I'm out on my platform and I'm mm-hmm. posting things out here because you're bringing up points and things that I want okay. to make sure are covered as sure. you're talking about it. I'm going and I'm finding the supporting information, you know, to go along with it. And I'm posting it just as you're bringing it up. I'm posting it out here. So for okay. sure, I know that I'm I'm on mute 
but I'm out here working. As you're talking, I'm looking for the documentation so that I can put it up online. And someone okay. is on the line, and if you want me to pause and ask them if they want to ask you a question, I will. Sure. Why don't we Why don't we give that a try? Okay. Let's see what happens. Okay. Just a second. Okay. Hello, Paula, do you have a question? Yes, I do. I wanted to know when was his turnaround? When when did the light come on that um, it, this relationship was not a healthy relationship for him? Yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that question. Carla, may I ask your name just so I can address no. you by name? No, no, please. Yes, oh. yes. No. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, that's up to her, but I just, I'm trying to protect everybody. Okay, I, I'm sorry. Um, I don't want. I don't. She said, "Lady Julia." Lady Julia. Julia, June, like Julia, 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 Julia. I see. I mm-hmm. see. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you for that question, uh, Julia. Um, I. That's a good question. It, it took me a long time uh, to realize what was happening to me. Um, what happened was I began to uh, I began to experience physical anxiety, like actual, uh, you know, increased heart rate, etc., at the very thought of my my spouse, the very thought of her made me feel anxious. It made me feel nervous. And I was afraid to communicate with her, often afraid to talk to her, to tell her how I was feeling, um, because I was afraid that she was going to say something to hurt me. Uh, I was afraid that she was going to, to want to do something to exact some sort of revenge on me for for daring to speak up and so I just didn't say anything and so one day my anxiety had reached such a height that I I had gone online and I was just doing some google searches for depression in men and you know how I was feeling and I came across a quiz online and it asked is your is your wife an emotional bully and there were about 15 questions. And I said yes to 14 of them. And the only reason one question was a no is because we didn't have children. And that question related to the using children to manipulate and so forth. And that was, that was at around probably 16 years into the marriage. Um, that I, I decided that something is, is really wrong, something bad is, is happening to me. And that that came, you know, that, that Internet search came on the heels of being told that uh, we were going to be celibate in the marriage until such time as I got on a scale and weighed in once a week. And when, in her judgment, I had lost enough weight 
we would resume a normal sexual relationship. And so I was actually married and celibate at the time and experiencing great anxiety and depression because of that very traumatic instance when she told me that. And there were a number of other things that also precipitated this intense anxiety and depression, uh, like being given a vivid description of her sexual arousal at the sight of another man. That was something uh, that which happened around the same time, right, as the celibacy. So those, the collective impact of those things together drove me to an emotion, a very dark emotional and psychological space in which I reached out. And that's when I started to get a handle on what was happening to me. And that's when I started to realize, wait a minute, something is terribly wrong here. Listening to your testimony and everything, that is amazing. So uh, did you reach out to the Lord or or how, how did, did you, you know, reach out to him? So I, yes, I, I, I'm a Christian, a member of a church community. And there were people who I thought were, were friends, uh, people who I think at the time perhaps meant well. But when I turned to, well, I, I turned to the Lord personally, and I should, I should make this distinction. Turning to the Lord and turning to the church are two very different things. <laughs> you can turn to the Lord in your prayer closet, which is what, something that I did. And you can also look for God's hands, feet, his tongue, and his voice in the, in the uh, hands, tongues, and voices of other people who you fellowship with. And that's one of the things that I did. So I reached out to the Lord. I reached out to other people in my church community, uh, just really one or two folks. And uh, they empathized with me, uh, but ultimately their, how can I say this? Ultimately their orientation to the situation was very orthodox and very toxic. So for example, in some Christian communities, the teaching on, on divorce is so fundamentalist and so rigid that you're basically told to stay together at all costs, even if you're in danger. And uh, there's a lot of women in the church who have been counseled to do that when they've been on the receiving end of abuse from men. And so with one, with both of these people, this was the kind of thing that I was ultimately getting from them. And so it was very toxic. But when I, when I sought God about it, one of the things that came to my, my mind as I prayed and, and I firmly believed that it was God sort of, sort of speaking to me is that, that my, my principal obligation is to, t- is to take care of the soul that, that God's trying to save. And if I'm going to take care of that soul, then I have to be, what's the word I'm looking for? I have to be vigilant enough to understand that if I cannot be married 
and be healthy at the same time, I have to choose my health. Because I was literally at the point where I was going to commit suicide. I really felt, and I mean, at the height of my dysfunction, I actually thought that if I killed myself, my ex-wife would be better off because she would have the sympathy of the community and she would be free, of course, to remarry because I was dead and she could move on and everything would be okay. So at the height of my dysfunction, I was still looking out for her and still looking for a way to make sure that she was okay without with little to no regard for my own self. And so, yes, I did reach out to God. I did reach out to the church. Uh, I didn't find a lot of solace in people who I thought were close friends. But interestingly, I did find a space, a very healthy space, at a uh, church about two and a half hours south of where I lived that had a men's group. And I remember going to a few men's retreats and really, really being able to pour out my soul and my spirit and just being rejuvenated and encouraged. And it was then that I began to realize that I was carrying a lot of pain. So I think in, in Christian communities, uh, men, it's a very good thing for men to get together. And um, I, I don't want to just say just get together, uh, but I want to say get together and be good to yourselves. And that means don't sit around and lecture one another on how you have to be better husbands and better fathers. Deal with some real issues. Deal with some of your own dysfunctions. Deal with some of the dysfunctions in your home. And a lot of men have got to learn to set healthy boundaries because it's when we set healthy boundaries that we begin to take care of ourselves uh, because God has given us a life to live. And if we don't take care of it, we're, we're not doing his will. So yeah, I did reach out to the Lord. I reached out to the church and those were some of the results. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I hope I answered I hope I, I hope I answered your questions. Yeah, yes, you did. You you answered my question um because of that abuse that's in the church that we don't talk about. Um but your testimony is amazing. And um I was thinking that um the more we uh Climb up about these things Don't want to talk about them This is what Jesus wants from us Those mm, uh, mm. deep things Those deep things Because our spirits Are supposed to be healthy We're supposed yes. to be healthy spirits And anytime yes. you're not Free you don't have that Freedom you don't have mm-hmm. that Joy that that uh, that Life that light In your life mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, you're not showing that Christ, uh, there's something wrong there. That That's not healthy. Because he says we're the light of the world, and that light is Christ. And when I look mm-hmm. to my Savior, my Savior is happy. My Savior is joy. He is peace. He is healing. He is freedom. He is deliverance. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the joy of my life. And so uh, I, too, went through some um, 
uh, you know, abuse and, and everything. But it was Jesus that brought me out. And uh it was it was him and me. And I, I didn't find uh the uh connection that I needed. So I sympathize with you as that. And you are right. Mm. People are not the church. It's a difference That's between right. Jesus and the church. And that That's difference right. when Jesus came he began to show himself to me in a way that I'd never seen before. And so right. I had to come out of that depression. So that depression yes. about me not feeling good about me got mm-hmm. me into abusive relationship. But I came out. And when mm. Jesus came, he came and he took me out. And when yes. I began to learn that word and learn who I was and my identity, yes. Oh, the tables yes. turned. The enemy didn't like me. But uh, today oh. there's a boldness. There's a freedom whom the sun set free is free indeed. I am free indeed. Yes. Have life. Yes. Life is life, but I don't allow it to overtake me. I take it to Jesus because he knows everything that I'm going to go through, and he knows what he has for me. And then I went back to Jeremiah 29 and 11, for I know the thoughts. Plans I yes. have for you, not the hurt nor the harm. It was his word that brought me out. It was the word, so and it, it it just seemed like I would be in the right place at the right time. Sometimes it was the television. Sometimes it was going to a place in the message. He would talk to me through the message. I would get it, and I got I begin to grow stronger and stronger in the Lord. And then after a while, it's just like a new me came forth, and. Um, it was Jesus. So I give praise today. I thank you for your life today. I pray that God would do great uh, great things for your life. Let your testimony be a light. Let it be uh, a key. Let your testimony be a key to others that are locked up in that situation and that you would unlock the door and they would come out in Jesus' name. Thank you so much. Oh, my. Thank you, June Leah. I really appreciate that. Thank you for your story, too. Hello, Patricia. Yes, can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. Okay, I was on mute, and I want to thank Lady Julia for her question, her question, and it is still yours. And I'm out here posting onto uh, LinkedIn as you're talking. I found a quiz. I don't know if it's the right quiz that you're talking about, but I did find okay. a quiz out here. So that's I'm in the background and I'm just like uh, the domestic violence uh, okay. training quiz. So I found that and I posted that out on the social media. So I am I'm listening to you. <laughs> I'm okay. listening to you and okay. anybody else who wants to call in. But uh, right now, the thing that you said the most is that, and I will say this is that the one thing that I can say in terms of people that that scripture you're talking about, am I my brother's keeper? Mm-hmm. Um. Somehow or another, that scripture has been misconstrued and translated into other things in the male community. Is that mm-hmm. if 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 a man wants to talk to another man, that man has to initiate that conversation. Where that's not really scriptural, because if you go into the scripture, that mm-hmm. if you see your brother who has been overtaken, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. then go yes. to him. Go, you go yes. to him. Not mm-hmm. him come to you. Okay. And so if he will hear you, then you save his soul. But if he will not hear you, then you do what? You go back again and you take somebody else with you. All right? Mm-hmm. And then it says that if he won't hear you, then then you're supposed to mark that man. But we never get to step one. <laughs> we never get to step mm-hmm. one because men say, well, I'll talk to him if he calls and talks to me about it. You know, I don't want to get in his business. I don't want to say this and I don't want to say that. So if another man does not reach out on his own to say, hey, I need help, I'm hurting, to his brotherhood, Nobody seems to be reaching out. You know what I'm saying? Like with a woman, a woman will yeah. tell all of her friends. Anybody that she feels like, yes. you know, will listen to and help her. But the men, yes. because they've been emasculated and they have been led to believe in this yes. false way of being um, machismo or whatever you want to call it, yeah. that they sit back. And, and, and because of, yeah, and because of the women's willingness to talk, if the woman is the abuser, then she can use that to her advantage by talking to everyone and presenting the the issue in a certain way that's consistent with her public with her public face. So what my ex wife would do is she would talk to people and tell them that she was concerned about my health and about my my, my physical well being. But whenever she brought the issue up to me, it was brought up with a, so much hostility and so much anger and so much resentment. And it was always, always about her lack of sexual attraction to me. It was always about that at all times, privately. But publicly, she would make it about something that caused her to be perceived as a loving, devoted, and loyal spouse. And so these are the sorts of manipulative games that are played in abusive relationships. And, and that makes it, that makes it really, really difficult for men because men are not encouraged to talk anyway. And on top of that, they're experiencing something that's difficult to describe because we can't even really conceive of men as being abuse victims, particularly not of emotional abuse, because we don't even consider men to have emotional lives at all. We just sort of see men as beings who are there to do what we want them to do, what we need them to do, but we don't really see men as beings, human beings with inner lives, emotions, feelings, hopes, fears, Etc. And and that's what ends up happening. And until the culture changes, and until there is a language that a man can use to communicate how he's feeling, that is recognized by the broader culture, men are going to continue to suffer in silence. And that's the real problem that we have. And as you put it earlier, that's that's my why. That's that's the reason why I am continuing to try to raise awareness of this problem because Patricia for every man like me who who made it out there's a lot of other men who don't 
And there's a lot of other men who follow through on those suicide plans and end up dying. And I, if, if any of them are listening, if any of them are listening, then my prayer for them and my hope for them is that they would hear what I'm saying and hear my story and know that they're not alone. And there, there is help available for men. That's, that's the other part that I should, I should talk about a little bit. So there was the abuse in the, in the relationship. And then following the relationship, there's a period of healing that has to take place. And if there's any men out there who are listening, who you believe, if you believe yourself to be in an emotionally manipulative and abusive relationship that's affecting your self-esteem, then I would say to you that the first thing you should do is get some help, get some therapy. This is a stigma in, in certainly in the black community, there's a stigma uh, against mental health. And in black church communities, it becomes compounded by this idea that all we really have to do is pray about it. And that if we just pray about it, everything will go away. That there's something actually wrong with you if you go see a therapist. Uh, and therapy, what it does is it helps you get to the bottom of what your problems are, and it gives you some of the tools that you need to correct them. And one of the things that I had to come to grips with in my recovery and in my healing as, and part of my therapy was that I had to accept some responsibility for failing to set boundaries in that relationship that I had allowed myself to be on the receiving end of that kind of treatment and that I had the complete power to put a stop to it long before I did. And what that's done for me is that going forward, I know that I have to set certain boundaries in relationships with people, not just romantic relationships, but you know, professional relationships, friendships, whatever the case may be, I, I have to come to a place where I where I set boundaries and where I say, you know, I am worthy of treatment better than this. And so much of my healing has been focused on this idea of recovery and of responsibility, of being more responsible to and for myself so that I'm healthy and that I'm able to relate to people in a healthy way instead of a way that's going to put me on the receiving end of emotional and psychological trauma. So that's important for a lot of men out there. And I, I'll say this, Patricia, it's very, very hard for men to find a therapist who works with emotionally abused men because the bias that men are the abusers has actually affected the therapeutic community. So you hear a lot of people who, a lot of therapists, uh, in fact, when I was seeking therapy, I had to call around to about four or five different therapists before I found one who told me that she would treat men, that she would treat a man who had been emotionally abused. I had one therapist tell me that 
she doesn't do that because men aren't the men are not abuse victims. Men are the abusers. And I mean, to hear that kind of thing from someone who's supposed to be part of a community that's responsible for helping people get better reflects very poorly on just how little people take men seriously when it comes to their emotional health. So don't give up on that. I mean, I, I relocated and before I even left my, my home, but before I even had a place to live, I had a therapist. That was how important it was to me. And my therapist has proven to be excellent. And, uh, and so I've come a long way the past few years Fortunately, I've never had to take medication, so I, I haven't used uh, medication, but through the therapy, through the talk therapy, through the treatment for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, which I had as a result of my relationship, my marriage, I've been in therapy now going on five years, and uh, to recover from the suicidal ideation and and everything else, and I'm, I've come a long way. So I'm grateful for all the work that I've been able to do, and I would just say to any man who is listening out there, don't give up. There are places you can go. There are people who you can call. If it's, if it's out of your network uh, for your health insurance, if you have to pay a little extra, this is your life that you're talking about, and you need to find it. You need to find somebody to to help you because you can't do it yourself. And in addition to that therapist, I would recommend having a, a, a very close network of, of family and friends, just a few people who you can talk to who will give you unconditional support. And uh, I think if you do that and you stay with it over time, you'll find yourself in a much better place. So there's hope for men out there. And I would certainly hope that if you're listening, you would be encouraged by by that uh, by that point. Thank you again, Dr. Carlson, for that. And when you made the comment about seeking out therapy, and not all therapists are created equal because mm-hmm. of the bias, the bias, either cultural bias or bias in training, and, and I, I would say some of it is cultural, some of it is training, that because mm-hmm. most therapists are trained for female victims. Yes. And, yes. you know, the, how do you say, the curriculum in the college level the, that they, you know, undergo leans towards this happens to women and it does not address anything happening to men. So when you go through a program like that and you've been indoctrinated to believe that it's impossible for this to be, you know, sometimes you see it and sometimes you don't, but predominantly it's a female thing. It's not. It's a human issue. It's a heart issue. And because we've made it as a society so um, embarrassing, so difficult, for men to speak up, and that's why it's, I still go back to that scripture, that when you see, and it says clearly, when you see, if you see your brother overtaken, that means overtaken in a fault. Mm-hmm. And it's not just talking about 
sin, but if you see them overtaking their thoughts, something is not right, then go to him. And it says, ye which are spiritual, the ones of you who are spiritual, the ones, you know, who have not been overtaken, you restore him. You don't wait mm-hmm. for him to pick up the phone. Mm-hmm. You go and yes. you say, hey, yes. um, you know, I'm concerned about you. And what can I do? Yes. And this is um, Galatians 6 and 1. And I, I don't want to make this preachy. I don't want to make this because mm-hmm. I don't really care whether they're Christians, non-Christians, whatever. I want to make this just, I don't want to make it about politics. I don't even really want to make it about religion. But I will make it about mm-hmm. relationships. And when I say relationship, usually right. we're talking about relationship with Christ and with the church are two different things. Mm-hmm. Two, two totally That's different right. things. And so everything right. should start with him and then go to the church. But at the end of the day, it says um, in Galatians, it's Galatians 6 and 1, it says, Brother, if mm-hmm. someone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual mm-hmm. should restore him with the spirit of gentleness. Okay, with the spirit of gentleness mm-hmm. and a trespass. A trespass, it says, you know, it, it's talking about being in a sin and being in error and a slip up. Mm-hmm. You know, they are mm-hmm. laughing, right? Mm-hmm. And they're almost mm-hmm. unconscious because they aren't mm-hmm. thinking clearly. They, You know, they're falling away, they're slipping, and it's a false step. It's a trespass. You know, has mm-hmm. maybe always been this way with them, but when you entertain things mm-hmm. that are not correct, it becomes your new norm. Mm-hmm. So, yes. so for me to say to them is that, you know, you now, uh, you were talking about 19 years you spent, 19 years, right? <laughs> and you yes. said it wasn't until yes. year 16 that you actually started to, Mm-hmm. So, you know, stop with the laps, you know, stop, stop, you know, having, mm-hmm. um, say, okay, you know, she treats me real good in public. So, you know, that that strokes your ego, you know, made you feel good mm-hmm. because, you know, you were the guy. And, and so she, you know, made it all, and this is any situation where there's a male or a female, but at the end of the day, that's gaslighting. You mentioned that. That's gaslighting. That's love bombing. And it's, mm-hmm. the, it's the cycle of abuse because you go through these intense highs and these deep lows. Mm -hmm. And then there is the honeymoon where everything seems to be fine. And then you have Mm -hmm. that moment of chaos that's brewing, like you said, walking on eggshells. And then the next thing you know, then it escalates. And each Mm -hmm. time, each round that you go around the wheel, then it Mm -hmm. becomes more and more, more and more Mm -hmm. um, difficult. And it becomes more and more painful. Mm -hmm. In time, because mm-hmm. said, I didn't want to say anything because I was afraid mm-hmm. to say anything because she would hurt me, you know, yep. and, and I knew that whatever I said, she would hurt me. So you go through the, um, what what is it, the ovulation phase when it says love bombing. Oh, you know, I'm just going to flatter you, I'm going to praise you, and I'm just going to gush over you and do something to make you feel like I really care about you. And then you go from that to the transition where, you know, you want, you like, okay, I don't like how you make me feel. I don't like when you do this and do this, whatever. And then they try to make it seem like, well, you know, 
I I wouldn't be mm-hmm. doing that if you didn't do this, like you said. You know, if you would get mm-hmm. on the scale, I wouldn't do this. And if you would do this and if you would do that, then I wouldn't mm-hmm. have to say those things, you know. So then they get into mm-hmm. criticism, and, and, and the criticism is so cool. And, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have any faults. They don't have any flaws. So they devalue mm-hmm. you, and then you go back, right back into the transition of, you know, I'm going to love you, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and oh, you're so wonderful, they abuse you, but it's like training you like a dog, Train, basically mm-hmm. training you like a dog to become accustomed to being abused, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's like even a dog eventually will run away from home. If mm-hmm. you treat yes. a dog even a dog will run away from home if it's being abused. So, if yes. a dog has the ability yes. to detect when it's not being treated well, they don't even have, um, how do you say, the relationship, the, the tripartite being the relationship that we are supposed to be able mm-hmm. to have, a horizontal mm-hmm. relationship so that we can be vertical with other mm-hmm. people. But they don't have that. And so if he made us in his image mm-hmm. and in his likeness, then surely he made us with the ability to detect when we're not being treated well. Yes. So, I mean, do you want yes. to talk about, like, the, the flight, the fear, you know, our flight? What is it? Is it called, uh, you know, you're either sure. in the situation or you are afraid uh, yeah, to go so or I, free? Yeah, so I, that's that's a good good question. Uh, I Patricia, I this is a, this is a really deep, story because I I was afraid. I mean, I I knew I knew that uh, I knew that once I separated from my wife and my, my intent and let me just say this a, a little bit about divorce. So so I was the one who filed for divorce but I I should be very clear just because I filed for divorce does not mean that I wanted a divorce. And and just think about what I'm saying here for a second. People do a lot of things in life that they don't want to do, but that they have to do. If you're in the hospital and the doctor tells you that you're either going to live with two legs uh, you're either going to live with one leg or die with two legs and that you have to get your amputated. You have to get your leg amputated or else it's going to kill you. You're going to get your leg amputated. Does that mean you want to get your leg amputated? Not at all. It simply means that in order to save your life, you have to do something that you don't want to do. Because you would rather live with one leg than you would die with two. And that's the situation that I found myself in as I faced divorce. My ex-wife and I were separated for seven months. And at the very beginning of the separation, before I left, I explained to her that if certain things did not change, specifically if she did not agree to stop these periodic episodes of hostility and aggression directed at me, 
that I could no longer be her husband. I told her that two and a half months before I even moved out, before I even left. I knew I was going to be leaving, and she knew I was going to be leaving too. So that was out in the open. But my initial plan was not to move out and then file for divorce. And when I moved, I moved. Like I moved all the way to the other side of the country, right? I moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. And it wasn't something that I necessarily wanted to do, but it was something that I had to do in order to take care of myself. And so during the separation, uh, or before the separation, it was very difficult for me to have that conversation with my ex-wife and say to her, you know what, we have to separate because this is how I'm feeling and it's not getting any better and I just don't like the way I'm feeling right now. I don't like what's happening to me. And I explained to her, I have to get well. I have to get better. And I believe I explained it to my ex-wife with this illustration. Imagine that you're holding a book in your hand and that you're trying to read the book. Then imagine that you have the book pressed up. You have the book open so the pages are visible, but you have the book pressed up against your face. You can't read the book because it's too close to you. So what do you have to do in order to read the book and understand its contents? You have to move the book some distance away from you to create a space in which your eyes can properly adjust and read the words on the page so that you can understand it. And the way I explained it to my ex-wife was right now, I'm trying to understand this marriage, myself, and our future but it's all pressed up against my face. And so what I need is some distance between myself and this marriage in order to see exactly what is happening because I can't see it right now because I'm too close to it. It's too close to me. And so that was the illustration I used to explain to her why I felt it was necessary for us to separate And so we had that conversation in July. I think I moved out at the end of September. So it was about two and a half months before I left. She knew that. Then once I moved, I tried to, I started therapy, and in good faith, I was trying to explain to her what I was being treated for and everything and what was happening. And... I tried to get her to talk about our future together. I even suggested that perhaps she go to therapy too. And she told me that uh, initially she said, I don't, I don't need therapy. Um, I've dealt with my issues. I just can't control what other people do. That's what she said to me. And so we talked and we would talk on the phone. And every time I brought up our future or what I wanted it to be like, or what I thought, what what did she think it would be like? She never wanted to discuss it. She never wanted to talk about it. So what began initially as a very difficult discussion to have with her, once I had the initial conversation with her, 
it became easier for me to bring it up because now by moving out, I had actually set a boundary. And now with the boundary set and my communication of that boundary being very clear to her, because I said, if your behavior toward me doesn't change, I can no longer be your husband. Now with, with that changing and shifting the, the focus of the marriage, because I'm setting boundaries, she doesn't want to talk. And I tried no less than probably five to seven times to engage her in conversation over, over that period of seven months. And she just didn't want to talk about it. And meanwhile, I begin to hear things from other people and she's talking to other people, but she's not talking to me. And so the last conversation I had with her, uh, I, she, she said to me that I was making a big deal. I, I told her, I said, you, she said, well, what do you, what do you think should happen between us? Because you're on one side of the country. And I said, I'm on the other. And I said, you've been abusive to me and I want the abuse to stop. And then she cut me off and she said, you're making a big deal out of nothing. This is coming from a person who knew that her husband on more than one occasion had seriously contemplated suicide, who was in therapy being treated for post-traumatic stress disorder from the marriage and who had been trying to get her to engage him on what a future could be like with the two of them together while living on the other side of the country and knowing all of that for her to tell me that I am making a big deal out of nothing. It became very easy at that point to say to her, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And I hung up the phone. I immediately went no contact uh, with the exception of an email that I sent to her several weeks, about a week after that last conversation, explaining to her that I was going to be filing for divorce and so forth. So that was the journey from really start to finish. I mean, you know, when people ask me why my marriage didn't work or, you know, why the divorce ended, why it ended in divorce, you know, all I could say really to that is I asked my, I asked my ex-wife to stop hurting me and she told me no. She could not give me any assurance that the relationship would be an emotionally and psychologically safe place for me and understanding that I deserve better than that. I had to stick to the boundary that I had set and the marriage ended. And so that's, that's kind of how that happened. I want to thank you so much for being transparent and I want to thank you so much for surviving and uh, choosing to live. And to anyone who is out there who you feel like you'd be better off dead, no, you would not be better off dead. Um, if you can just, whoa, this is, this is heavy. 
This is really heavy uh, for me. If you can just speak to that person and let them know that after you got past the divorce and doors opened for you and new opportunities presented themselves to you that probably would not have presented themselves to you if you had of still stayed in the relationship. And if you had, how can I say, um, chosen not to live any longer, you would not have been alive to take on those new opportunities. So Mm -hmm. what would you say to pre-Timothy, pre-divorce, someone who Mm -hmm. is in your same situation that's still in the marriage, right? Mm -hmm. What would you Mm -hmm. say Mm -hmm. to the Timothy that you were when you were thinking about not living anymore? And what would you say Mm -hmm. to the present Timothy who has chosen, chose to live and to receive new Mm -hmm. and great opportunities? Because Thank once you, you're Patricia, gone, there's no opportunity. Yeah. So I, I really, if you can speak to um, yeah. those those three areas and any other thing that you can think of that you need to speak to, I'd appreciate mm-hmm. it. Thank you. Sure, Patricia, sure. Well, to my old self and to the men out there who are struggling with any issues of, of whether uh, any suicidal thinking or anything like that because of emotional abuse, in, a, in an intimate partner relationship, here's what, I, here's what I want you to know. What I want you to know is that your life exists for a reason. I don't know what that is because that's above my pay grade. But rest assured that there's a reason for you to be here. And whatever it is, I suggest to you that you start to examine yourself Examine your capabilities, examine your gifts, start to look at them. Start to look at your passions, the things that you enjoy doing. Who are you as a person? And what is the core of who you are? What kinds of things make up who you are? Because there's only one you in the entire world. There's a reason why our genetic code is unique to each human being. And that's because there's only one you. You are the only you that there is. And there is some plan for you out there. There is some plan for you to do something that no one else can do except the person that has your precise combination of gifts and capabilities. And so I would say to you to find out who you are, do a self-assessment, Start taking care of yourself in small ways. Maybe you're not ready to leave the relationship just yet. Maybe when you bring it up to your to your spouse or to your partner, you won't have to leave the relationship. In fact, I would hope that when you bring it up to your partner, you would be received well enough to the point where your partner would say, you know what, I'm going to work on this and I'm going to work at getting better and I'm sorry that I've mistreated you, and I can promise you that I'm not going to do this anymore, and I'm going to get better, and I'm going to get healthier. Because, Patricia, if I had ever heard that from my ex-wife, she wouldn't be my ex-wife. We would still be married. 
And so to the men out there who are at the feel like you're you feel like you're at your wits end, you feel like you're at the point of no return. Maybe you're not ready to walk away yet. But you know what? You're always ready to start taking care of yourself. So start to discover who you are. If you're looking for something to do that will help you get in touch with your gifts, find out what that is. Sign up for a class or maybe learn to play a musical instrument. Or for me, I actually began working as an actor. I began performing in plays, and that gave me a deeper sense of who I was, that that I had an artistic and creative side, that I had a, a, a spirit in me, that I had an aesthetic, artistic spirit. So find out who you are. Find something you can do that puts you in touch with who you are. You can start doing that today, and you owe that to yourself today. There is a life for you to live, and it is worth the living. I know I've been where you are, and I just want to encourage you today so that you will understand that nobody can give to this world what you can give to it because there's nobody else made quite like you. Your DNA is unique to you for a reason, and that reason is because you are the only you that there is in this world. And without you, the world is diminished. Believe that. Know that. Look at yourself in the mirror and get in touch with who you are as a person and begin to embrace even the smallest sign of life that you see in you. Embrace it. And repeat that every day. Get some help. If you're thinking of killing yourself, if you're having suicidal ideation, in addition to doing the other things that that I, I've recommended, go and get some therapy. Don't be penny wise and pound foolish. It's not about whether or not you can afford it. You can't afford not to do it. Get the help that you need. Start to take care of yourself. Begin to set boundaries, and you will learn a lot about the quality of your relationship after you begin to set boundaries, because if you begin to set boundaries and they continue to be disregarded, then you may know it's time to go. So that's what I would say to my old self and to the men out there who are where I was about four or five years ago. That's what I would put out there. Now, to my current self now and where I've, where I've come from and where in relation to where I am now, I just say that I was right when I told myself there was life after the marriage. I was right because now I'm on the precipice of a life that's far from perfect, but yet is so fulfilling and so rewarding. And, you know, one of the most rewarding things, Patricia, about where I am right now, and I want the men out there to listen to this, is that I I no longer have to pretend that I do things because of my wife on the outside when on the inside, I know that I'm doing them in spite of my wife. I no longer have to play that game because when you're in a toxic relationship, 
you often have to, you end up having to play along with the public charade that your abusive spouse is creating. And so because your abusive spouse is going to tell you everybody how much she loves you and how great you are and sing all of your praises when you're in public and you're in a situation that calls for it, you're going to have to pay homage to her, knowing that inside things are happening to you that are really destroying your soul and that are destroying your psyche. And so the best part for me is where I am right now, and I say this with all humility because I'm far from perfect, never have been, never will be. But one of the things that brings me the greatest joy now that I would say to myself now on the other side of this is that I'm at a place where I no longer have to pretend that I do things because she helped me. And I can instead thank people who actually deserve to be thanked. I can thank people who actually do care about me. I can thank people who actually did do things to help me. I can thank people who actually cared about me as a person. And and that is I think the most one of the most fulfilling and rewarding things to me is that I no longer have to go through this public exercise, this public display of insincere affection for someone who is privately cutting me down to my very core. And there is life on the other side and it's empowering to be in that position. Again, I don't say this in an arrogant way or I don't like, I don't want to thank people who've helped me do things. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. I, I believe no one does anything by themselves. And there are a lot of people who help me and I would rather give those people their due people who have helped me then have to play along in a charade where I have to give someone their due for helping me when really what that person is doing is hurting me inside. And it's a joy to know that I don't have to do that anymore. I guess when, when you were in distress, did your family believe you? Did you talk to your family? Did you talk to friends? I, I talked to I talked to a couple of friends throughout the marriage. There were a couple of people who I, I confided in. Uh, I'm not friends with either of these people now. Uh, that's a that's another story. Part of the fallout of the divorce is that people, for whatever reason. Um, decided that they could no longer be friends with me and be friends with my ex-wife. Why? I I don't know. I don't know why that is the case, Uh, but that's that's their choice. That's a decision that they've made. And as much as it hurt me, I have to respect it. I would caution anyone in my situation who's out there listening, if you're part of a religious community, 
don't put too much stock in the people in that community. Uh, I made the mistake of overestimating these two people I'm talking about so badly that when the friendships ended, it hurt me more than the marriage. So don't overestimate people. Just because people are church people does not mean that they're good friends. And I made the mistake of assuming, of making that assumption, and I I overestimated who these people were, and I overestimated their value to me. So you don't want to you don't want to get in the habit of of doing that either. You want to make sure that you um, confide in folks who love you, who care about you, and who will be there with you um, through thick and thin. And that doesn't mean that they have to make choices, a choice between you and your spouse. People can be supportive of both uh, parties in a divorce without having to, um, you know, without having to, have the relationships or the friendships fall apart. But yes, I did. I did. Uh, there were a few people, like I said, during the marriage who, who kind of knew, you know, different things, but I didn't, I didn't speak to my family that much until the end. And one of the nice things that came out of my divorce, uh, if, if something nice can come out of it is that it gave me an opportunity to reconnect with my family in certain ways. And so I was able to, I've been able to over the past few years reestablish some connections with my family because I didn't, I didn't speak to them that much. They didn't know too much. And toward the end, I reached out to an older brother of mine who has been married for a long time and me and him talked and between him and, and one of my sisters who I also reached out to, I was able to get some very wise counsel from my family members, and um, I've learned through the process of divorce who my real friends are. I have about, I'm fortunate enough to have about four or five really good, close, close, close friends, very close people who have stuck by me and who have been um, good to me in the midst of all of this uh, turmoil, and that's been a good thing. But a lot of the folks I reached out to, uh, two of them that I reached out to during the marriage who, who sort of knew this for whatever reason, they decided that they were no longer going to, uh, to be friends with me. And in fact, they, they didn't just decide not to be friends. Well, one of them decided he just didn't want to be bothered with me anymore. And there was another one who decided that she was going to tell me how wrong I was biblically. And so, you know, I start getting text messages with how, you know, how wrong I was and how could you do this? And, you know, you've, you've done this and that. And, you know, I, I just, I just don't even know. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you the juvenile behavior that ensued from this one person. She said, I hadn't spoken to her in about six months. And I'm thinking, the reason why I haven't spoken to her is because she knows that I'm going through a divorce and, you know, she probably wants to remain neutral and is probably going to wait until things die down. 
And then she sends me a text message basically telling me what a bad person I am because I ended the marriage. And she attempted to give me, to shame me for giving my TED Talk, which is how you and I got connected because you watched my TED Talk and then we connected through LinkedIn. But she saw the TED Talk when it first came out. And when she saw it, she was incensed and somehow in her mind, someone appointed her to be the guardian of my ex-wife's reputation. And she proceeded to tell me how I, she was tired of me trying to smear her and why would I do that? And why would I give a talk publicly? And it was unnecessary for me to do that. And all of this not only reflects poorly on how much of a friend she was to me, but also reflects very, very poorly on how men are received when they actually make themselves vulnerable and share a piece of their emotional life in this culture, right? This is the kind of, this is the kind of reception that men get. And for that reason, I almost didn't give the TED Talk, right? I mean, I almost didn't give the TED Talk because I was sore afraid of this kind of backlash. But I decided to do it anyway because I realized that it was the, the TED Talk was never uh, it was it was about, it was my story, but it was bigger than me because what I discovered and what I have discovered since in meeting people such as yourself and other men who have sent me emails is that there is a ton, there are tons of men out there who have the same story. And the emails that I get from men who say the same thing is happening to them. So it's my story, but it's also the story of all these other men. And I realized that I had to tell that story, not just for myself, but for them. And in typical narcissistic fashion, Right, A narcissistic abuser will always see themselves as the victim. So when my ex-wife saw the TED Talk, it was, of course, me just trying to drag her name through the mud. Mind you, I never mentioned her name. But in her mind, all, all I was doing was attacking her. This was my way to attack her. And what she doesn't realize is that it was never about her. It was about me. It was about my healing. It was about my story. And it's about the story of so many other men out there who are hopefully listening. And, and what I would say to you now, men who are listening, don't allow anyone to shame you away from telling your story. Don't allow anyone to shame you and make you think that you're less of a man because you've chosen to make yourself vulnerable for the benefit of other people. That is wrong, and that's part of my why also, because it's time for men to express themselves in healthy, constructive ways that will lead them into better relationships and better more healthy lives. So, yeah, I reached out to some folks and 
it uh, it wasn't always good, but I I did find out who my real friends are, and I should say this, Patricia, you you you, you some of your listeners may, if they're, you know, if you're if you're Christian or if you're in the church and you're listening to this, you need to hear this. The people in the church turned their back on me at a time when I needed the most, and the person the person who helped me the most in tangible financial ways in the midst of my trials is someone who's not even sure if he believes in God at all and doesn't even really have a church affiliation. So that says a lot about the church, and it says a lot about the difference between the church and God. And so I just wanted to put that out there. But, yeah, be careful who you confide in. If you have family, it's probably better to confide in your family than it is in your friends. I learned that toward the end. But whoever you confide in, just do what you can to take good care of yourself because you are the only you that you've got, and you are the only you that can do the things that you're able to do. The world is much worse off without you, and you have a lot of good contributions to make. So just know that. Remember that, and I just want to encourage men who are listening to believe that today. Thank you, Dr. Shanty. The other question that I would like to pose to you, you said that there were no children to the marriage. That's, that's one part. The other part is when you said that you had not been in touch with your family did you lose touch with your family because of your marriage or if it was for some other reason, you don't have to say that, but I'm saying did your marriage have anything to do with why you were not connected with your family? Yes, it did. Yeah, it did. The marriage did have something to do with it. It it just I'll just I'll leave it at that. Yeah. But it was okay, it was fine. really that's, Yeah, it it, it did. No. It did have it it did okay. have something to do with it. Yes, yes. And what and was your that, other question, Patricia? Um, let me let me just circle back to what you just said. Uh, oh, because sure, did. And that's, sure. that's what I, I felt like because that is how um, men basically are. I don't. I don't let me let me let me roll back one more time. One more time on that. Okay. Isolation is the way a an abuser get to take that kind of authority in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Whether, mm-hmm. because if you isolate them, it's, it's that divide and conquer, that if you isolate mm-hmm. them, get them off to themselves away from their friends, from their family, uh, from their, you know, normal norm, what used to be normal for them, and you create a new normal mm-hmm. for them, it's, it's like that mm-hmm. training of a dog, if you would. If you go mm-hmm. and get a dog from the pound, then, you know, you have to bring that dog home and you have to condition them to how you want them to be. If you get a dog that's just newly born, then you don't have to condition them because then they're in the environment that they were Mm -hmm. born into. Okay. But if you take that dog and that's been kicked around and pushed around or whatever and you bring them into an environment and you continue to kick kick them around and push them around, that dog at some point will run away. Because mm-hmm. the reason why it was in the pound was because it was being mistreated. 
So it knows that. It has that instinct to know that the reason why I was in the pound is because I was being mistreated. So they will not mm-hmm. tolerate being, normally they will not tolerate being abused again. But you take somebody who has not been accustomed to being abused and they don't know the signals and the warning signs is that when somebody isolates you from, I, I'm going to put myself out here on the line, okay, because I wanted this to be all about men, but when mm-hmm. I was in abusive relationships, the fact that I was cut off from family and from friends made it possible for them to do the things to control and manipulate and abuse me. And I remember when I was in my last abusive relationship and I said, um, I may not feel like I deserve better right now, but at that time I had a child born in that relationship. And I thought, this child deserves better than that. Because I don't think that for me I left that relationship because of myself, but I left it because of my child. Okay. And I remember when I left and, you know, they tried to win me back and everything. And I had set a time frame. I said, you know, if if we're going to make this work just like how you did, you know, this is how long I'm going to give you to do this, this, and this, and this, if this is going to work. Okay. Um, I did not want to be a single parent. Okay. But... I knew what I had already suffered as a child, and I didn't want my child to suffer that same thing. But I remember uh, my child's father saying to me after I left, he said to me, I thought you said you didn't have anybody. See, it was like I I never really talked about my family because I was already isolated from my family. So I never really talked about my family. Okay, so when I met him, I was already isolated from my family. You follow? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. His ability to perpetuate that and to keep me from friends, the friends that I did make or, you know, try to introduce people that were his friends into our relationship so that I would create a new circle and take me out of my existing circle, you see what I'm saying, uh, pull me away from people who knew me so that when things were out of character for me, no, there was nobody there who knew <laughs> this was out of character for me. So mm. isolating you from your family was the way that you were able to be controlled like that for so long. Isolating you from yes. people who knew yeah. The, the Tim that you used to be. Yes. And then you became yes. that Tim, you know, that, that Timothy. You became that Timothy that began to be conditioned to accept and to tolerate that that kind of treatment. And so with no one yes. around to say, did you notice, you know, um, that, you know, he's not acting like he usually, you know, he's got uh, this and this and this, you know, so why don't we ring him up? But because you had that rift between you and your family and your friends, your, your, you know, your circle that you had before you got married, basically, mm-hmm. you know, then you were in this, because, and that's another thing, and I don't want to get off on that because we're coming down to the end, 
Um, but that's how this happens, is that slowly they don't like your friends, they don't like your family. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. They don't like anybody who's going to influence you that this is not mm-hmm. normal, that this is not right. But mm-hmm. for me, the breaking point was the birth of my child. That was my breaking point. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't, I personally wasn't strong enough to leave for myself. Mm-hmm. I would, I would own it and admit that. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I was so beat down and I was so tired and I was so emotionally drained and I'd had a difficult pregnancy. So I wasn't strong enough for myself, but for my child, the strength was there to say, my child deserves better than this. So I left early after, you know, I, after I healed and got well and got my health back after my pregnancy and after, you know, going through whatever I needed to do to get myself together and get myself prepared to leave, you know, I left. And I didn't leave with everything that I I left everything behind, everything behind mm-hmm. except for the basics. And I went and I was staying in, in a domestic violence a woman's shelter. And I couldn't stay mm-hmm. there for any longer than six weeks. So I bounced around, bounced around, bounced around until I was able to really, really stabilize myself with my child. But mm-hmm. my child mm-hmm. meant more to me than I meant to myself. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the fact that you didn't have children, you said, you know, mm-hmm. that that was a good thing. So I wonder if you had children, would you have stayed, you think, just just hindsight, would you have stayed mm-hmm. 10 years if you had children? Mm-hmm. Uh, if 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 I had children, I probably would still be married. Yeah. Okay. I, I would. Okay. I would probably still be married. I, I may have. I may have. I don't. But I, you know, it's hard for me to say, right? Because I may have gotten to the point with the suicidal ideation where I would have been able to separate the dysfunctional relationship with my wife from the need to be there for my child. And I may have, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm almost certain that that I would have found the strength to to be there for my child um, all while finding a way to at least distance myself emotionally from my ex-wife. And I, I would have... I, I probably I would have either stayed for the sake of the child, uh, or I would have got up enough courage to uh, leave and end the relationship and still have a, a relationship with the child. But the dynamics—it's hard to predict that because the dynamics would have been so much different. But I, I will say that I probably would have would have remained a lot uh, closer uh, in f- physical proximity just for the sake of being able to, to have a relationship with my, with my child and to love my child. Okay. Now, now that you said that part is that let's take it a step further. Okay. Mm-hmm. If for the sake of the child that 
you were thinking about this child psychologically, emotionally, because, you know, as a, as a parent, not just as a father, but as a parent, um, you mm-hmm. have to consider the best interest of the child. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to lay that out there, but you don't have to talk about that. But mm-hmm. going going forward right now with men who are out there, because I've had men talk to me who uh, <clears throat> I, I don't, like I said, I'm not going to be at liberty to say certain things, so I'm just trying to make sure of how to say it. But men with children, okay, who are, how can I say, I've, I've had conversations walking on the sidewalk with people for some reason, and just really, and I mean that seriously, will open up and share things with me, and I, I'm grateful for that. And I've seen men who are fighting this fight, you know, and I've seen men who are fighting for the sake of their children. And I'm I'm seeing uh, men who are not just fighting for their children, but they're being abandoned, like the whole shebang, you know, the the, the uh, you know the wife decides, you know, I've had enough, and she she doesn't want him or the children. Mm. Okay. So this is mm. this is a broad subject, and we're coming down to the end of. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh my goodness! And I mean, I, I there is so much that I want to say, but all I can say is that I hope that I can have you back on the show, and we can continue to expand this topic because it's yes, not. You know, I thought two hours was going to be too much, but two hours is not enough. And so um, yeah, I'm well, hoping that you will come back and we will um, cash this out some more because this has so many different dynamics to it, so many different dynamics. It does. And so many it does. And, it, there's, and, and there's so much that I have not touched on because if one of the things I've discovered in my own journey of healing from emotional abuse and emotional manipulation from a from a narcissistic intimate partner is that I got into that relationship because I was already compromised. My self-esteem was already uh, compromised and I was already vulnerable to that kind of manipulation in the first place. And what my therapy has helped me to see is the background that led me to uh, to the place where I would even be in a relationship like the one that I was in, and okay. so that's that's there's a whole nother side of that 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 has to be explored. But I, let me just say that I'm so honored and humbled, Patricia, that you would have me on your show. I just want to thank you. I want to thank those who were listening, the callers. I, I hope that someone out there has heard something I've said today. Some man somewhere has heard it, and it, it refuses to be shamed by his inner life, a life that all human beings have. And and I just hope that something I said today made a difference for someone, and I just want to thank you Patricia, for helping me to raise awareness of this problem of the emotional abuse of men. And 
I say enthusiastically that I can't wait to come back and continue this conversation with you. Thank you. I have one last question to ask you. Yes. You said that you were already vulnerable yes. because of self-esteem. I don't believe that it – okay, I, can, I, can, I want to say this, and, and hear me, just hear me, hear me, hear me on this, that it wasn't about the scale, but something in your life made you vulnerable to this type of a relationship. And oh. were you – Oh, absolutely. Okay, you know, so mm-hmm. did you come from a you know uh, a mother and father home, or was there some you know situation where uh, I had a I had a I had a two parent home. I had a household that was filled with love, but I also had uh, a very tumultuous relationship with an older sibling um, that put me in the position of of being compromised. With uh, mm-hmm. with low self esteem, yeah, okay. yeah, okay. it affected okay. me. That... It affected me deeply. Yeah, and it was and it was and... nothing. You know, I didn't. I'm not a victim of. Uh, let me just be clear. I'm not a victim of sexual abuse uh, or anything like that. But I suffered uh, as a child. I suffered severe emotional trauma during my my younger years, but especially during my formative years, when you're coming into the stage as a young boy where you're starting to develop an attraction to women, etc. And so a lot of that um a lot of that tumult with my older sibling led me to begin to see myself in a certain way, and I began to tell myself a story about myself that was not true. I began to say things to myself like, a woman doesn't want you because you're not attractive, and so you have to, if you're going to have a relationship with a woman, then you're going to have to let her do whatever she wants. Hmm. And, And that that happened that happened to me during my formative years, right? So by the mm-hmm. time I get married, this is what I'm thinking I have to do in order to keep a woman because otherwise she's not going to want me. Yeah. Right? And so when I'm in that situation, now I'm overindulgent and I'm hyper-attentive to everything my ex-wife wanted because for me that was the that was the only thing that was going to get her to keep me that was the only thing that i could do to get her to keep me because other than that a woman is not going to want me and i told i began to tell myself that at a very young age 12 13 14 years old and during those formative years you know because the fact that the fact that i had <laughs> you know, low self-esteem, right, did not have anything to do with the fact that I was still attracted to women. So I began to, or young girls, right, as a young man myself. So I began, I adapted to that in probably the most dysfunctional way possible of saying, well, the way that I get a woman 
then is to be overly nice to her, to do things for her that perhaps she doesn't deserve in an attempt to win her affection. And, uh, you know, my <laughs> one of the turning points for me in my therapy uh, that knocked me to the floor was when my therapist said to me in the midst of a session, I hope you realize that you married your older brother. And it was in that moment, right, when I came to see the depths of my own dysfunction that began to take that took shape during my formative years mm-hmm. that compromised me so much to the point where I spent 19 years of my marriage trying to win, trying to win my wife's approval. But you were really trying to win your brother's approval. In a certain wow. kind of way. Well, the same way I would have tried to win it from him that I had tried to win it from him. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. And so, and so there's a real, and I mean, you know, there, there's a real, and my, you know, my brother's not a bad person. Uh, no, either, you, didn't say you know, that. Um, you didn't say that. No, right, that, so right. But we're not, but these yeah. are these, but these are these are circumstances that that you know had an effect on me, and uh, much of my time in therapy has been spent overcoming uh, the childhood trauma that mm-hmm. led to the marital trauma. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That led to the mm-hmm. trauma of. Uh, of, and, and so much of it is is rooted in appearance, right? Yeah. An wow. appearance, what one looks like, and and uh, of course these are the types of things that really have little to nothing to do with love, uh, right. but have everything to do with a sort of superficial attraction. So there's a lot more to talk about, and I just, again, Patricia, I'm so humbled and honored and grateful. Mm-hmm. For for everything that you have done in inviting me onto your show, and and I can just say with eager anticipation, I can't wait to come back and talk with you some more. Yeah, um, you you know what you just said that was the the key right there is that what you needed was to be validated, and you did not get that validation. So mm-hmm. to the men out there who are broken. And you haven't been validated by somebody that you needed to be validated by, be it your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your uncle, your aunt, your grandmother, your grandfather, whomever you were seeking validation from and you did not get it. This is the reason why you basically married or in a relationship with a person that did not give you the validation you were seeking it from. This is the bottom line is that this is the key is when you realize, like he said, he basically married his brother because he was seeking the approval of his brother. Okay, so Mm -hmm. if you're seeking the approval of your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your aunt, your uncle, your grandmother, your pastor, whomever you were seeking validation from, if you are being abused emotionally, physically, financially, sexually, in any shape, form, or fashion, you, your children, you have basically been in a relationship with the person that you needed to get validation from and you did not get that validation from. And the outcome of that, the outcome of that 
is that you have to realize that you are valuable. You are Mm -hmm. valuable. You are a necessary part of the fabric of this world, the community, this this conversation. It's about you. Mm -hmm. He's come Mm -hmm. through this. I've come through this. Mm -hmm. And I simply Mm -hmm. want to be a voice that's crying out in the wilderness to men especially because you have been mm-hmm. silenced. Women, we have 6,000 words compared to how many words? 2,000 words that men speak because mm-hmm. we can over-talk a man. And so men are used to being over-talked, over, not heard. And I'm not saying this is a blanket statement for all men. There are men who are abusers and, and there are women who are abusers. I'm saying humanity as a whole. We have got to make this about human beings. But until we can make it about human beings, human beings, we've got to bring the men to the table. Women, we cannot shut them out. We cannot shut them up. We cannot shut them down. We must bring them up and make them stand up and bring them to the table because it's a human condition that requires a human response. So, Dr. Timothy J. Golden, I want to thank you again um, from the depths of my heart for lending your time, your your voice to this conversation that I'm having and trying to have and trying to make a difference and say to the men, it's time to stand up and speak up and be heard. Get the help that you need. Get hurt. Mm-hmm. You need to get the help. Remember, you're in a relationship with somebody that you needed validation from and you did not get it. Your mother, father, sister, brother, uncle, aunt, them, all of them, whomever it was that you didn't get the validation from, you're in a relationship with that person and they look like your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whatever. Come on. You do better when you know better. Now you know better. Let's do better. Thank you again. You've been on the air with Patricia Adams Live. Until the next time that we set this show up, I hope that you guys will have gotten the strength and the courage. Message me on LinkedIn if you're connected to me on LinkedIn and pose any questions that you want to see Dr. Golden address on the next show. Please, please, please reach out, and I will have him speak to those. Thank you again, Dr. Golden. God bless you. Thank you so much, Patricia, and God bless you too. I look forward to being back again soon. Thank you to all your listeners, too. Take care now. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.